Well, brethren, we have had excellent growth in the campaigns and good growth in the work overall. We're grateful for that. And as you know, prophetic events certainly are speeding up. And uh, the debt crisis is kind of coming to a boil right now. And if they don't get this debt deal done, then we're going to have to suddenly pay higher interest rates and everything is going to start going wrong. Even if they get it done, they're probably going to do a half-baked job and uh, the Democrats are going to try to get any real change postponed until after the election. So we have to pray that God will guide those things. And I would ask you to pray that God will guide these various laws that the Congress is making right now. Because you may not have heard this, but they are working on tightening all the exceptions, you know, on the in the income tax laws. And they may try to cut off the the exemption that you get for sending in tithes and offerings to churches and giving to charitable organizations and things like that that could hurt the work. So we do need to be praying as a church. God says, pray for our rulers, and we do want to ask God to guide those in authority. We may not like everything they do. I'm sure the Germans didn't like everything Hitler did, and various peoples around the world didn't like all their rulers, but they are in an office, so we can respect the office, and we can pray for them that God guides them for the sake of his people, his work, and for his purpose. So it is important to pray that God guides these rules and these laws that are being made uh, right now as we speak. My daughter Elizabeth sent me an email a couple weeks ago, I think it was, saying that her husband had been encountering more demon problems than he had done at any time since they came over to Great Britain. I've had two or three field ministers indicate that several have had problems like that, people being upset just in an unusual way, or even demons influencing people and trying to get at people in a personal way. And I think that that is obviously going on. Sometimes it does go on at some points worse than others. But this is beginning to happen. And brethren, we're entering a time, as you know, and I'm not going to speak on that today, but read about it back in Revelation 12, where there's going to be a spirit war. And I've talked about that before, where it talks about Satan trying to go up to God's throne in heaven one last time and being cast down violently. And he goes about with great wrath, knowing that he has but a short time. And some of God's people are going to perish because he's going to go around stirring up trouble. He'll try to cause division. He'll try to influence people with demons. And he'll cause the armies of the earth and the dictators and bad guys of every description to attack and torture and kill God's people. That time is not here yet, but it is coming. And we need to realize the enemy that we have. So we need to understand the problem that is ahead of all of us. And God has allowed Satan the devil to be here. Why? Undoubtedly, God knows that we need, if we're going to have eternal life with glorified spirit bodies, we need to be tried and tested. And God is going to try and test every one of us, me and you and all of us, before he lets us into his eternal kingdom. And we have to really understand that. He cannot give us the power of 10 million atomic bombs. And I really mean that. That's the kind of power we'll have of 10 million atomic bombs or more. Because we'll be part of the Creator family. He wants to know where we stand. So our human nature 
is just naturally filled with vanity, selfishness, lust, and greed. We know that, but it's not totally diabolically evil. There are certain good things in human nature, the love of a mother for her children, and a certain decency and help a father often is, even carnal fathers, as many of your fathers and my father was, all kinds of good things that people try to do unless Satan is influencing them. But Satan then comes in and takes the human nature that's there, and it becomes Satan's nature to a limited degree. He tries to impart as his nature in the same way God wants to eventually impart to us his nature. I really appreciated Mr. Hernandez's example a couple weeks ago in his sermon where he talked about that silversmith keep polishing this thing until he could see his own reflection in that peace, whatever it was. God wants to see his own reflection in you and me in every way he can. And we've got to think of that, try to reflect God in everything we think and everything we say and everything we do. But we have a real battle on our hands, and I hope that you can understand that. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how we can overcome Satan How can we and how should we overcome Satan? That is one of the most important things we have in this life to do. Remember back in Isaiah 14 and and Deuteronomy 28, God describes Satan and how he began to be Satan. And I'm not going to read Ezekiel 28, but I'll read Isaiah 14. It's Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 are two of the descriptions on the beginning of Satan. But turn to Isaiah 14, if you would. And here in verse 12, God says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? So as nearly every commentary recognizes and every authority, and we certainly do throughout the Bible, Lucifer is shown to be a supreme fallen angel and actually Satan the devil himself. Lucifer means light bringer. He originally was a light bringer. He was one of the three great cherubim surrounding the throne of God the most powerful beings that God has created. How are you fallen? There was Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And when Lucifer turned aside, the indication is he took every single one of his angels with him. About one-third of all the angelic hordes went with Lucifer. And that's scary. He did a very thorough job. And as Mr. Armstrong has pointed out, When you go back and read Revelation chapter 20, you read in that passage how there had been a thousand years of the reign of Christ on earth, and we will be there, hopefully, if we overcome and overcome ourselves and the world and Satan, we'll be there as kings and priests, teaching God's law, teaching God's way of life, teaching the absolute awe and fear of God, the right awe of God and love of God. For a thousand years. But right after that, God allows Satan out of the bottomless pit. And it apparently is just a matter of weeks or months. It doesn't indicate years. It doesn't say. But very quickly, comparatively speaking, here are hundreds of thousands or millions of human beings coming down to fight Christ at Jerusalem. And God has to send fire down from heaven on them. That's how quick Satan can influence people if they turn away from God. It's awesome. And it's scary when you think about it. We're fighting a very powerful enemy. So how are you fallen from heaven? How are you cut down to the ground? You who weakened the nations. 
He's the God of this world. As it says back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Satan is called the God of this age, this 6,000-year period. He weakens the nations. He turns the whole nations aside. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. This is one of Satan's basic attitudes. He says, I'm as good as God. I can set my own course. No one's going to tell me what to do and so on. That's the attitude he begins to impart to human beings. He's always done that, as we'll see. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the Most High. So he decided that he would be just as good as God. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, or the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit. And he goes on to describe what would happen to Satan eventually. This is Satan the devil, the basic attitude of competition and jealousy and lust and greed that Satan has. And he imparts that to human beings. And that's what we tend to see in people in the world today. So we have to overcome that and understand that that being is there and that is his nature. So we do want to understand. We don't do want to be willing, obviously, to face that and to overcome it. Now, turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2 at this point in your New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2, brethren, and most of you know what I'm going to read, but turn to it. Be careful to understand it. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, he talking to these Ephesian Christians. He said, you, God, made alive. They'd been dead in trespasses and sins who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you also once walked according to the course of this world. That's the way the world goes all the time. According to the prince of the power of the air. So Satan is the prince the ruler of this world's atmosphere. He broadcasts, he broadcasts these attitudes. He's the prince of this world's air, the spirit. He's a spirit being who now works in the sons of disobedience. So Satan is busy 24 hours a day. We get tired and we run down. We need to go to bed or we need to rest. Satan does not. He's a spirit being. He keeps at it, keeps at it. 24 hours all around the world, pumping out this attitude of competition and jealousy and lust and greed and hurt feelings and feeling I'm as good as God and God can't tell me what to do and all that kind of thing. He just pours that out all day long, all over the world. And Satan had guided our first parents to decide that they would decide what is right and what is wrong. And they did do that, and we've had that attitude in human nature ever since. The spirit who now works, so he's busy, among whom you also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So it's desires of the flesh and of the mind, these attitudes of vanity, and we're as good as God, and we can fight God, and we distrust God, and God is not fair, and this attitude is just pouring out from Satan the devil all the time the desires and lusts of the mind and of the flesh. And we're by nature, he tells the Corinthians, we were by nature children of wrath. We would deserve God's wrath if we went that way, just as others of so on. 
So that is the beginning here of the understanding about Satan. He is the God of this world. He's a fallen spirit being. He is the prince of the power of the air, pumping out, pumping out this attitude of rebellion against God. I want to give you several points on how to overcome Satan. So turn to Genesis, but note these points here. The first key to overcoming Satan is to be aware of Satan. A lot of people don't think about Satan in the world. Satan's unreal and they laugh. And, you know, Bill Cosby said, well, something goes wrong and, and the, the devil did it, he said. Me mispronouncing the word devil on purpose, of course, like it's D-E-B. The devil did it and everybody laughs. Well, of course, the devil doesn't do everything, but he does do more than most people even begin to start to imagine. He's got the whole world around them deceived. He's got these people making all of these television programs and motion pictures and writing music that just stirs up people against God. He makes adultery seem fun because he has all these situation comedies. And fornication is just normal. All the young kids jump here and there and in all these movies where they seem to just go into each other's houses and apartments and no one, no parents are around. It just suppose everyone runners around like that. And he makes it all seem interesting and exciting and fun. You don't see little babies dying or have been without their fathers and mothers because of that. The movies don't show the bad side of that very often. They just make it seem interesting and exciting. And the devil's very clever how he packages the way of the devil, sin and rebellion against God. He's extremely clever. And he's got these kids listening to their so-called music where they scream and yell like demons wanting out of the bottomless pit, just screaming and yelling. There's no melody. There's no beauty. There's no harmony. It's literally like demons trying to get out of a pit somewhere, and yet kids call it music. And it creates a kind of a hysteria, a hysteria, and a rebellion. We'll just do what we want to do, and that usually does go along with drug addiction and the kind of stuff they had at the so-called uh, love fest they had back there. And uh, I'm trying to remember the what's this place where they had it. But they were talking about hippie love. And, of course, what kind of love did they have? They had fornication all over the place. Is fornication God's love? No. Fornication is totally selfish. You can get disease epidemics very easily. Unborn, uh, illegitimate children could be born from it. You cheapen the whole idea of sex and marriage and what real sex and marriage and love ought to be about by dragging it down through the cesspool. And so they have all this stuff. Satan has a very clever way of making it seem exciting and doesn't show you the end result. So this is the way Satan does We've got to understand there is a real devil, and we need to understand his methods. One of the ancient uh, sayings, and I've heard it cited to several different people. I don't know where it first started. Some Greek philosopher, maybe, or maybe some Egyptian or Babylonian way back there before him said, Know your enemy. Some modern generals have said that, but they did not originate it. Know your enemy. Know that Satan is alive. Know that his very word Satan means adversary or enemy. And be aware of his tactics. Know your enemy and be aware of his methods. So let's go back to the beginning of Satan's dealing with human beings here in Genesis chapter 2, if you would. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, and here it describes Satan coming on the scene in the first instance. 
Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the eternal God had used or had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Right away, what's he saying? The implication is God's not fair. Hasn't God let you have everything? How come God doesn't let you fornicate and do this and do all that other thing? Everybody ought to be married. Men ought to be able to marry men. What's wrong with that? Can't everybody have a mate? Well, you see how the question is worded. Well, yeah, but what is a mate? What is mating all about? Is mating about having children and about having a family? Or is mating just a different form of masturbation? Is that what it's about? So you got to go back and ask, how do they use these terms? And Satan the devil has a way of twisting these things, as he's doing in this present debate, over men marrying men and women marrying women to make it seem bad. Doesn't everyone have the rights? Yes, they have the right. God will allow them to murder. He'll allow them to strangle their grandmother under the dark of the moon. You know what? He allows it for 6,000 years, but that does not make it right. It's wrong if it disobeys God's laws, and people have to come to the place that know that God really does know what's right, and think about the end result. What is the end result? Not necessarily the good feeling at the moment, not necessarily even the immediate result, but the end result of going a certain way is what? Frankly, if anything is good, everybody ought to be able to do it. You know, if it's good, but marrying is involved a man and a woman having children. But things that are good, everybody ought to be able to do it. So if the idea of homosexuality is good, then everybody ought to do it. But everybody does it, and everybody got into the lifestyle, they're promoting what would be the end result. An empty, desolate earth with no human beings. Everybody would soon be gone. Because men would be marrying men and they can't produce children. So Satan would have achieved his ultimate result. But they can argue and look all these examples they give about all this is ridiculous. Is God unfair? Has he let you eat every tree of the garden? And the woman said, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees, but there's one tree in the midst. He said, you shall not touch it. So he's told us we can't do that. But then the serpent came back, and you know this is a very much abbreviated conversation. He probably had a long talk. Now, I don't want to make you ladies feel bad, but my older son, who's very successful in sales and been in all kinds of sales since he was a kid, he's told me two or three different sales managers told him when he was selling door-to-door, if a man comes to the door, unless he's immediately receptive, just say, well, okay, we'll see you later and get on quick. You're going to waste your time. But if the woman comes to the door, then you can work on her because the woman is more naturally receptive. They're not foolish, but they're just more responsive and they will allow themselves to get into things more quickly and easily. They will often receive things more easily that are bad. Sometimes they receive things more easily that are good. But Satan knows that. Satan knows that. Satan God made a woman the weaker vessel and she can be more easily fooled and taken advantage of. Many examples in the Bible show that. And most of you know that. I'm not trained being insulting. I'm just showing what your Bible clearly shows again and again. I could give you 10 or 15 examples of it in the Bible. But Satan knew that. So where did he head? He headed right toward the woman to take advantage of her. 
and of her responsiveness. I know when I was first a little boy selling magazines, I used to have a magazine route when I was about 12, 13 years old, and I was selling Liberty, the old Liberty magazine, and Woman's Home Companion, and Ladies' Home Journal. I think those three magazines, maybe one more. And I found... This is my experience, and I know I've talked to other men to the same thing. We were used to be allowed to go in these big apartment buildings. Now they say no solicitation or, you know, they have a lock. You can't get in there. They didn't used to do that. So I would go around the apartment buildings. I could get a lot more customers more quickly, of course, than walking long distance and just head around. If a man came to the door, 90% of the time I learned no luck. But if a woman came to the door, then the good part of the woman comes out, of course. The woman would see this little boy that's sincere, so she would loosen up and give me the money to buy a subscription to the magazine. You see, that's that's good. That's wonderful. But if the person selling the goods happens to be a bad person, then the woman can be taken advantage of. Her natural responsiveness, her kindness, uh, whatever, uh, that can be make, taken advantage of in the wrong way. So it works both ways. But Satan knew where to go. And so the woman said, uh, he's told us not to eat of this one tree. And in the day you eat of it, you shall die. And the, the devil said, the serpent said, you will not surely die. Oh, God's just fooling you. Satan's way is really better. God's kind of hard on you. He's misleading you. It's really more fun to have fornication. It's really more fun to try out drugs. Think about the excitement you can have from all these drugs and wild music and all the other stuff that's in the world. Satan is telling our young people. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll understand things beyond and you'll have a real rich life, exciting beyond what these old narrow-minded Christians have to live. They have all these do's and don'ts and they can't have any fun. Think of all the fun we can have going this other way. This was the beginning, brethren, of that attitude that has come into the human race from Satan the devil. And the devil builds on that and expands on that, obviously, very, very much. The attitude, don't really trust God. You know, it doesn't say it directly, but indirectly, he says, well, that's not true. You know, you're not really going to die. So the idea is you can't fully trust God. You can't fully trust the Word of God. And the second aspect of it, often it comes in, is God is not fair He's taking away things from you. He's not letting you live the full exciting life that you would like to live. So remember, Satan will often attempt to pervert the wisdom of God's ways and his laws. He will try to make them look bad. He will try to make them look too strict and how they're hard to follow and this type of thing. So he'll make this word selfishness and vanity He'll make that look like wisdom and make people want to follow that. And then people will get confused. I remember seeing the movie years ago, and I'm talking way back. I think it was in the late 1950s or early 1960s. A motion picture came out called The Cardinal. Some of you older brethren may have seen it. It was about the Roman Catholic Church, but it was they had bad stuff in there, of course, but some of it was good. The one point was very good. The devil has good and evil. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they showed this nice woman who was pregnant and going to have this child, but something was wrong with her. And the doctor told her she'd have to have an abortion 
or the child might die or she might die or whatever and so on. And so it shows how the priest came and she talked to the priest and, and he told her that was wrong to have an abortion and kill this child and that would be murder and so on. But then it showed years later that she, it showed in the movie she did die by not having the abortion. She did die. Now that normally doesn't happen, but it, in the motion picture it showed this woman did have a hard time and she did die. But then it showed years later, of course, it built into it. This really beautiful young woman came along, and she was the child. She lived. So this beautiful young daughter would have died otherwise, but the woman gave her life, in a sense, under the circumstances. But God knows the end from the beginning, and God shows us we should not kill an unborn child. We should not murder The world says a woman's right to choose. That's right. A woman can choose to be a mother or she can choose to be a murderess one way or the other. You either mother or you murder. So you have to figure it out. But frankly, that's what God indicates and that's what we ought to understand. God sees the end from the beginning. And obviously we don't woman have, want our women to die and having children and they have all kinds of other ways of taking the child or by cesarean section and doing other things that would not murder a child today that they might not have had back then. But at any rate, it showed that in the end it was better that she had this beautiful young woman and that woman, that child lived. Brethren, think about how millions, and I mean probably eventually many tens of millions of our Protestant friends and brethren, our relatives out in the world who are Protestants, are going to go back to Rome. They're going to go right back to the mother church. They've been taught in the past at least that that is wrong and that Mary worship is wrong and we're not going to be part of that. We're Protestants and all that. But they're going to be given this idea that it's all different now. The whole world's going to go that way, and the Protestants are watering everything down. And so they'll think, well, I either become a Catholic or I'm left out, and the whole world's different. And they'll be given the idea, and many of them will, will, will probably feel very sincerely about this. At least the Pope stands for something, because the Protestants are watering down everything. And so the Pope continues to say abortion is wrong homosexuality is wrong and other things are wrong you see and the protestants start to go along with everything there is they're so political and so weak they don't know what they believe most of the modern protestants all they believe is just get more people in the church and keep the little social club going they have there that's their whole thing they don't understand god or his word or anything but the catholics stand for something but it's what they stand for what the bible says well of course not You don't have a choice between Protestantism and Catholicism, the world should understand. They have a choice between that or doing nothing. And frankly, it would be a lot better to do nothing than join a wrong church anyway. Or if God is calling them, they can come to understand where God's true church is and come there. I remember that several of the McNair family came into the church, you know, years ago. Most of you know them because Mr. Carl McNair was our fine director of the ministry and one of the finest men I've ever known. But I got to know the whole family, eight of them, five boys and three girls. Why did so many of them come in the church? All but two came in. 
I guess it was eventually all but one. The oldest brother finally came. He'd gone off to the Navy in the Second World War. The oldest daughter went off and got married and began to have children before Marin and Raymond and Burke and Carl came in. And she never came into the church, but even Archie, the older brother, came in. So eventually seven out of eight. How could that be? One reason is because they didn't have any religion. One, I think it was their mother who was a Jehovah Witness or had been, and the father had been Presbyterian or something or other. So they just decided out in the country on the farm just to be good people and teach their children good principles of life, which they did. They were all good people overall. So they weren't all hooked by this world's religion. And when Marion and Raymond Manair began to read the Bible, they had kind of a pure attitude toward it. They had been spanked by their grandmother who was babysitting them and spanked real hard, I guess. They probably deserved it. <laughs> and so they got mad and they said, we wish grandmother would die. They both told me this and uh, and she did die just a few days later. It just shook them. They said, oh my, we're responsible for her death. It scared those little boys so much they sent off to rear, uh, Sarah's Roebuck a company and got a Bible. They only had money for one Bible. Later they got a second Bible. But first they had the one Bible. They began to read the Bible. Then they began to listen to various programs all over the radio. And pretty soon they narrowed it down to one man who seemed to tell them what the Bible had been telling them. That was the name was Herbert W. Armstrong. So then they were out picking uh, apples in Washington State all the way out from Arkansas to make money during the summer in the apple picking season. They got a lot more money out there than you would get in Arkansas at that time. And anyway, as they came down through Pasadena, they thought they'd see Mr. Armstrong. And they came by his house about 7.30 or 8 in the morning. And he wasn't completely dressed yet. He was still shaving. And his wife let them in. And he rushed down in his robe and talked to them. And they were just wanting to visit with him for an hour or so and talk about the Bible. But he used the Armstrong charm on them. And he's very wonderful personality if you got to know him and he really used it and he got them to stay and come in to ambassador college they never made it back home again they just stayed right there i'm sure he got them with the arm he may have bought them clothes i don't know what he did but he got them right into ambassador college because the only student to show up for the second year of college was kenneth herman who became the registrar and with the two mcnairs and there were three new students at least they came in about five or six weeks late but he got them in so they stayed, and each of them became a minister and served God's people. But you see, they were better off not having known any religion than having the wrong religion. Well, I've got my religion, and I'm not going to listen to this Armstrong, because the wrong religion uh, can hurt you, in a sense, better than no religion. Think about it. Anyway, Satan is going to deceive millions of people to go right back into the Catholic Church over the next several years. And that's going to be a big pull on, you know, millions of Americans and Britons. Many in Britain are already doing that, by the way. And many Catholic, uh, I mean, uh, Anglican priests have already gone back to Rome, as you may have read, because they're allowed to keep their wives under a special dispensation so they don't have to become a celibate priest. So they're going to have the idea it's all better than nothing. So we've got to know Satan's methods and how he confuses people and how he makes Satan's way looks good and God's way looks bad. So anyway, we've got to know that Satan is very real 
And we've got to try to understand and think about his methods and how he works on people. A second key to overcoming Satan is we must come to know, to really know and fully trust God. And brethren, we've spent most all our sermons on that, so I don't need to give you, I'll just give you a few basic things you already know. If you're going to come to really know and fully trust God, you've got to ask God in your heart and really mean it for God to reveal himself to you and make himself more real to you and develop, which you, you many of you already hopefully have, the profound fear of God. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's also called the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of understanding. All three things are mentioned in the deep respect and awe for a great creator, a great personal creator who created and now rules the world. And secondly, you have to prove to yourself that this book was inspired by that God to where you have a deep respect for the Bible and are surrendering your heart and will and mind to live by every word of God, and you really mean it. Those are key things. Then along the way, you all know this, but you've got to study the Bible, not just carelessly read it. Really learn to read it over and over and ask God for understanding. Sometimes when I studied the Bible, I just silently prayed just sitting there for not long, just 20 to 40 seconds. Say, please open my mind and teach me your truth and lead me in your way and give me understanding. Mr. Armstrong said he sometimes used to study the Bible on his knees. I've done that on a rare occasion, but I can tell by talking to him and reading, he did it a lot more because he was all alone. There wasn't any great big church filled with people that knew the truth when he started. He had to come to the truth. He used to say, fellas, I know I made certain mistakes in starting out with the doctrines. I had to come to this truth one doctrine at a time. He did. And he studied the Bible on his knees. Study this book, the mind of God in print. Secondly, obviously, meditate. And that's something I've been weak on in the past and God is teaching me to do more of. Not just read it, but think carefully about it. What does it really mean? What's the end from the beginning? What are the fruits of this and that and every aspect of the Bible? Meditate on it. Thirdly, pray. Pray to God on your knees. A day without prayer is not only a day without sunshine. It's frankly even worse than that. I've lived in England. <laughs> and Sir Winston Churchill said, England is a beautiful little island when the sun is shining. And alas, it seldom shines, you know. So if you live in an area that's all cloudy and covered, you might have a day without sunshine. But you never better never have a day without prayer. Don't ever have one day without prayer. At least, brethren, even you new brethren, learn to get down on your knees and talk to God, our Father in heaven. Help me, guide me. Read the Lord's Prayer. Read some of our articles on it. If you're new, try to get my booklet on the 12 keys the 12 keys to answered prayer. And that will give you a whole series of things to think about, to pray about. Learn to pray and talk to God on your knees every day. The best time is in the morning. As you know, Mark 1, 35, Jesus rose up early in the morning while it was yet dark and went out to pray. Many other scriptures show that that was done. You know, Daniel prayed morning, noon, and night three times a day. 
the prophet David back in, in a Psalm, uh, uh, I think it was Psalm 55, he describes how evening, morning, and noon I will pray to you and seek your face three times a day, if possible. Try to get back and talk to God and gradually build up your prayer time to where you're talking to God just like you would to your wife or some other person. You don't just talk to him for five minutes. Talk to him at least 45 minutes or an hour a day or at least 35 or 40 minutes a day on your knees to where you really know God and you're communicating with God every day. Talking to your creator. And third or fourthly, fast. Use the tool of fasting. Asking God to humble you, to teach you, to fashion and mold you, to give you the spiritual strength so you can overcome yourself and the world and the devil. So these are all things that we've got to do to fully know and trust in God. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted on that very issue, of course, and we have to understand that. Turn to Matthew 4 here. We find our very Savior being tempted by this Satan, the devil. Matthew chapter 4, and let's begin in verse 1. Before he began his official ministry, he was already being tempted by the devil. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. God's Holy Spirit guided him to do this, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, so Jesus, yes, he fasted, and he fasted every now and then. This one occasion he fasted with nothing. In the Bible example of spiritual fasting, it's with just sunshine and fresh air. No food, no water. Read it over and over in the Bible. Daniel, I mean, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 9, verse 9. And Deuteronomy 9, verse 18. And Acts 9, verse 9. I think there are a lot of nines in there. I think that's also the number in the book of Acts where Paul was struck down and began to seek God. What did he do? He fasted right away to get close to God. He knew what to do. When he had fasted 40 days and nights, he was hungry. You better believe the very cells of his body were crying out for food. None of us should try that because we're bodies, our bodies are so degenerate we would probably die. But Jesus was able to do that. Now, when the tempter came, he said, If you're the Son of God, command that the stones become bread. Well, notice what the verse says. When the tempter came, Satan's name is the tempter. So he comes and he tempts you. He'll try to put a stumbling block before you to put a situation where you want to get your feelings hurt and you want to turn away from God or turn away from the church or do this or do that. He will tempt you sexually or he will tempt you to get back at someone and hurt them or kill them or do something else. He'll tempt you to lie. He'll tempt you to steal and all this kind of thing. And we're all human. We all have temptations. I've had all kinds of temptations of every sort. And I don't want to start to, to, uh, I start to go and describe them, but I don't need to. Uh, some I've taught to describe it just take time. But he's the tempter. If you're the son of God, you will now a normal carnal man. Well, of course I'm the son of God. I'll show you what I can do. But Jesus did not do that. He knew Satan was trying to get him away by getting him to respond, yes. We had a man come into Ambassador College years ago, and he brought in demons over in a place called Murphy's House across the library building, a young man. And pretty soon he had some of the uh, other fellows in that dorm with him. He said, I feel the spirit. Let's pray. 
And they would follow him, and pretty soon they were being influenced because they would let him sort of lead them. And he was not a minister. He was not really converted, although they thought he was when he first came. But he was bringing in demons, we found. We finally had to kick him out. And some of these young men who followed him uh, later dropped out of the church. One did stay, I'm happy to say, but he was led astray for a while. But he would say, let's, let's, I feel the spirit, let's kneel down. If you get to responding in a positive way to Satan, then he gets a yes response, a yes response. You know, that's what the good salesmen do. They try to get you to say, oh yeah, this is right, and make, they tell you things that are really right or true. Then later, well, buy this, this is the answer to everything. Well, maybe it's not the answer to everything. It's the answer to getting more money in their pocket and more money out of your pocket. <laughs> but anyway, you've got to figure that out. Don't give Satan yes responses. If you're the son of God, command that these stones be become bread. But Jesus did not buy into that. He could have done that. It wouldn't have been sin normally, but he would have been following Satan. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm not going to follow you, devil. I'm going to follow God, and I'm going to eat on his strength and his truth. Then the devil took him up to a holy setting and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, way up high, apparently hanging at the very top where he had this sense of being dizzy and, and disjointed way up there and looking down from way up. And you could, oh, you could get a little bit. People get up on top of a Thai building or top of the Empire State Building and have this tendency to want to jump over. So they probably used to have to put railings around those places so they wouldn't even jump over. And he said, if you're the son of God, well, of course, he was the son of God. He goes, well, I'm the son of God. God can stop me from falling. Of course he could. But again, don't follow Satan, even though what he says seems to be okay. If you sense something from Satan and be very careful to be aware of how Satan might be guiding a situation. So if you're a son of God, throw yourself down. And Jesus said, no, I know God could hold me up, but I'm not going to do that. You're not to tempt the Lord your God. You're not to put God to a necessary test. Uh, finally, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, there isn't any mountain like that. We know that. So this was a great, powerful dream or vision to where he was up high and he could see many of the great kingdoms. He could see the marching legions of the Roman Empire. And they must have been very impressive back then. They were well organized. They had hundreds of thousands of soldiers and the beautiful dancing girls and the music and all that stuff that would appeal to a young man. He was a young man, 30 years old. He was still fleshly. He was tempted in all points like as we are. It says back in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. Hey, look at all this stuff. I'll just give you everything if you'll just fall down and worship me. That's all you have to do. Well, Jesus never said, of course, you can't give it. You don't have it. He didn't say that because the devil did have that. He was the God of this world. But he said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then finally the devil left him. He saw there's no way. Satan came right back of him. Uh, uh, Christ came right back up in, with, at him with the right scripture. Remember all through here, Satan is using what? He's using scriptures. 
He's using scriptures. He said, uh, you could command these stones to be bread. And that was true. He could have done that. Then he said, he'll give his angels charge concerning you and you won't be hurt. So go ahead and throw yourself down. And he said, I have the power to give you the world. And Christ knew that too, but he did not buy into it. Christ would quote the true scripture back to Satan. Satan can pervert scriptures. Satan and his ministers use scriptures. They'll put a wrong twist on them. That's the reason you need to really understand the Bible and study it and really study it. So we have to try with all our heart to overcome Satan and understand that uh, God's wisdom is not the wisdom of Satan and his perverted way of approaching things at all. The third key to overcoming Satan, key number three, we must battle against Satan and against a bitter spirit. We've got to battle. No, we're in a fight, brethren, against Satan and a spirit of bitterness. And I hope we can really understand that. So as it tells us here in Ephesians, turn back to Ephesians again, and this time in verse 6, chapter 6, I mean. Ephesians chapter 6 and beginning in verse 10, where the Apostle Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So it is a battle. He's talking about a battle. The whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, wiles means, you know, tricks, stratagems. He's very clever. He comes at you different ways at different times. Sometimes he'll try to get you upset at the world. Sometimes he'll try to get you upset even at leaders in the world in a wrong way and not respect their office. Sometimes he'll try to get you mad or upset at even God's laws in a way or thinking God's not fair. Often he'll pick on the ministers or the leaders of the church because that's easier, because we're not perfect, and they'll try to get you bitter against some rule of the church. I'm not trying to frighten you. I don't think any of you are in that situation. I'm just telling you, you can get all bent out of shape over some little rule of the church or a minister that corrected you too hard or this or that or something else. Satan will always know how to get at you. He will come at your weak spot, and he will try to get you on that spot. I always remember... I'll start on that. I'll just tell you the one thing. I've certainly been evil, but I remember I was very tempted up in Oregon. I was just out of Ambassador College. I had been around girls and boys in college and had dates and parties and normal associations. I was all alone up there in the ministry and visiting this woman. And she, I, we didn't have any rule not to visit women alone back then, and I didn't even think about it. And got over to this prospective member. She wasn't even a member, I don't believe. And uh, over in Tacoma, Washington, I guess it was. I was raising up the church there. And she wanted me to anoint her for a cold. I didn't know what it was, but she told me it was a cold. And we, she said, well, let's kneel down here. Okay. And I was a dumb ox, I guess. And I knelt down with her by the bed. And so we got up from the bed, and so she flops, she sort of went like that, and her robe flopped open, and she had nothing on. And, and, and she kind of was ready, you know. And I thought, oh my. And so I, I, I fled. I got, oh, I gotta see you later. I almost ran out of the place. <laughs> I, I was scared. At least I had the fear of God. And because it was very tempting, I was all alone. I was lonesome. And I, I still, 
I had plenty of testosterone back then, and I just had to get out of there. Right now, I couldn't stay around and talk to her, so I got out real quick and never visited her again. I hope she didn't die, but anyway, I don't think she ever asked me to come back. But Satan can really make it very difficult for you, and uh, you have to be aware I remember I'm not the only good guy. I've done plenty of bad things. But Dr. Hay, I think I told you this before, but so you don't think I was the only one like that. The early students uh, basically were very dedicated. We were down with Dick Armstrong and uh, Ensenada. We went through Tijuana, which was more rotten back then. But uh, anyway, we went on to Ensenada and further down and with Dick Armstrong had his car and Raymond Cole and Herman Hay and me and we're staying in this little hotel and I remember the they had the Mexican uh, mariachi and the dancing and Herman Hay literally turned his his he picked up his chair and turned it away from the girls well the girls weren't doing anything bad they were just maybe wiggling a little bit too much but it wasn't anything horrible at all no disrobing or anything so he was trying to be real careful but the next morning the rest of us Herman and Dick Armstrong and I were having breakfast there in the little hotel uh, breakfast room, and Herman wasn't there. We thought, where's Herman? Well, we knew he always went out for an early morning walk. And after a few minutes, he came running in, red-faced and puffing, huffing and puffing. He'd been running. And we said, what's wrong? He said, well, he went off in this uh, down the street, and these prostitutes came up, and they tried to grab him and come with us. So he literally says the Bible, he quoted that. He says, the Bible says, flee fornication. So he ran. He fled right then. That was a good example for me. In fact, that helped me later on when I was alone up in, up in Portland, I guess, and, and uh, Tacoma. But at any rate, don't mess with Satan. If you start to just cooperate and get along with him, we'll just come over here and, you know, pretty soon Satan leads you into this and that and something else, then you can be disobeying God in so many different ways. Don't let that happen. Remember, we're in a battle. So be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers of the rulers of darkness of of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, or as uh, some of the translations have it, wicked spirits, demon spirits in high places. We're fighting demons. They will influence us. They will guide us. If we'll let them, they will come at us from different directions. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, because it is a war, and you are at war against your human nature, against the world, and against Satan the devil, who's behind all of that. So take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. What is truth? John 17, 17, thy word is truth. That's the thing you've got to do. Gird your waist with truth. Your waist would be where your drive for food and liquor and your sex drive is. How do you direct those? Are those all evil? No. God made us male and female. He wants us to mate. He wants us to have a husband and a wife and children. He's intended that. He's not embarrassed by that. That was his plan. That's why he made us, but he tells us the right way to do it. He tells us the right way to use liquor. Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, not a whole bottle. 
and so on. Use it the right way. As Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to say, and I need to repeat that so all of you brethren understand it. He said, sin is not a thing. Sin is not a bottle of whiskey. Sin is not a young woman. You know, sin is not, you know, whatever. Sin is not a gun. Sin is the wrong use of a thing. If you use sex the wrong way, if you use whiskey the wrong way, if you use a gun the wrong way, you might use it to shoot a deer or something, but you should not use it to kill another human being. So sin is breaking God's law. So gird up your waist with truth, the Bible. Learn to use things God's way. Your appetites are guided by the Bible. Having put on the breastplate guarding your heart of righteousness, which is keeping God's commandments and having your shod your feet, the way you go, the things you do with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Have your heart in God's work, praying for the work, asking God, please, Father, bless us, lead us, guide us, bless the co-worker letter, send in the money we need to do the work of God, help us to reach out, help us to have more impact on this very confused world. Help us in every way we can to do our part to prepare for your kingdom. Above all, taking the shield of faith. A shield is something that goes out in front of you. The shield. And he says, above all. This is one of the most important things in this battle. Don't let Satan's darts even start to get into you with their poison and giving you these poison attitudes. Believe in God. Know that his way is right. Prove that to yourself and keep proving it. Keep proving it. And from then on, act on that proof. Act and live and walk by faith with which you shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, putting that spiritual poison in you if you let the darts get through and don't have the shield of faith and entertain these wrong thoughts and wrong attitudes of vanity and lust and hurt feelings and resentment against God, resentment against God's church, resentment against God's ministers. And I've told you before, I'm not making some excuse for something bad we're doing. If any of us break God's law and we sin, that's wrong. God will punish us. And if I turn aside in some big way or Mr. Ames or any of us and we break God's law, we should be kicked out. If we do some massive thing, I'm not talking about a traffic violation or something, but I'm saying some bigger. We continue to be a drunkard or adulterer or anything like that. And if the church turns aside to that, that's wrong. You might have to go somewhere else. But as long as we are preaching the truth... And as long as we are doing the work of God and basically not perfectly but teaching and practicing the government of God and are not going off in sin in some major way, well, every, every human being has made some mistake, then you better stay where the main group is that's preaching the truth, doing the work, and practicing God's government. Always keep your mind, brethren. That's helped me. That's helped me for nearly 62 years. I came to Ambassador College nearly 62 years ago that I found Ambassador College a place of paradise. Well, it was a wonderful place. But some of the leading ministers did get into lying and to drinking too much and to fornication, adultery, and some of you know that. I had to try to constantly look past that human nature. Did I ever get corrected wrongly? Yes, did I ever get sent out to exile for just what someone else didn't like and some human thing or to get me away from someone who was sinning? Yes. I had to pray and fast about it. Say, Father in heaven, 
the work is still being done, the truth is still being preached, and God is still guiding his government overall in the right way and so on, and even though I might be having a mistake or this happen, you'll take care of it. And God always, always, always did take care of it, and he always will. So keep your mind on the big picture. Have the shield of faith that you know that Christ is there and he will guide it for good as long as he gives those major fruits of where the truth is being preached, the work is being done, and the government of God is being taught and practiced overall the right way, the way they did in the Bible. Did they always do it perfectly? No. Remember how Paul and Barnabas got into it because Barnabas wanted a pressure to bring his nephew along after he turned aside, so they separated, didn't work with each other as much. They did later. He called Barnabas his beloved brother, but they weren't as close. And then Paul had to correct Peter to his face that one time because Peter did not even agree to eat with the Gentiles when some came down from headquarters at one time and he went back to his old practice of thinking there had to be a complete separation of the Jews and the Gentiles and Paul corrected him to his face. Many other examples, they made mistakes, they were not perfect, but they still were the church of God. And take the helmet of salvation, that protects your mind, God's Holy Spirit in your mind, the helmet. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, this is the sword. You don't have a physical sword, but you wield the Bible. You understand it. You study it. You use it the right way, which is the Word of God, praying always. And so we always have got to pray about these things and have the right spirit about it. With prayer and supplication, which means continued heartfelt prayer, being watchful to this end with all perseverance, and supplication for all the saints. And for me, Paul says, that utterance may be given to me that I may have, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Paul was in a jail and he was in chains the last several years of his life most of the time. And he, he was allowed to go through that, but he was still God's servant and wrote all these books. So anyway, understand that, brethren. We're in a battle, and we've got to take it as a battle, that we are battling Satan. Another aspect of this as a battle against Satan. Know that you're in a battle against Satan and against bitterness. So turn back, if you would, at this point, brethren, to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. One of the most awful th- things that Satan can get any of you into and I can't say I've never been tempted to feel that way. I have been tempted. I had to fight like fury. And I would have wrong attitudes sometimes for hours or maybe even a few days at a time. But at least I never succumbed or I wouldn't be here. But he describes back in verse 4, Hebrews 12, verse 4, You have not yet resisted unto bloodshed, striving against sin, crying out against sin, fighting against sin. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. God spanks us sometimes. He brings us down to all kinds of things. Nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves. He chastens. He doesn't chasten just the ones he doesn't like. He loves his sons. And just like a loving father will spank the children to help them before it's too late, God will spank us sometimes for our good before it's too late. So if you endure chasing, God deals with you as with sons. 
He says in verse 11, no chastening seems profitable or joyful for the present time. At the present time, it hurts. But grievous, nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. He said in verse 14, pursue peace with all men. Try to have peace with all men, even outsiders, of course, and holiness without which no one will see God. Holiness to be like God in every way. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God and any root of bitterness. And brethren, that's what I want to dwell on. If Satan can get any of you because of misunderstanding or resentment against, well, now they brought back makeup and we're not going to bring back makeup, as far as I know. (laughs) But I'm just showing you an example. What if we did? Would half you women get bitter and leave the church if God said, well, please don't wear makeup for a while? I hope you wouldn't. But I'm just showing how people get all bent out of shape over little things. Don't let those little things bother you. Here are a whole... Millions and millions of people out here right now dying of starvation in areas around the world that you read of every day. And people getting beat up. And rape used as a, a great weapon of war in vast areas of Africa where they literally have the army come in and just rape hundreds and hundreds of women to completely humiliate the whole city and just cause people to just think, I can't stand it anymore, we'll just submit utterly to this dictator, whatever he wants. They're doing that all over the world. That's nothing like women being asked not to wear makeup or someone being corrected over some other little problem. It's nothing. Think about what's about to happen in the world with the great tribulation. What we suffer through today, if you get your hurt feelings about something, it's nothing. Absolutely nothing by comparison. Understand that. So don't let any root of bitterness get at you. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause uh, trouble, and by many, and by this, many become defiled. They just are defiled. Mr. Herbert Armstrong told us a number of times, and I know Mr. Partian heard him say that. I imagine Mrs. Partian did too, because Mr. Partian acknowledged he'd heard it, and some of the rest of you might have heard it way back. He said, a root of bitterness is like heroin. Apparently, when you get addicted to heroin, that particular drug, you know, it's awfully hard to break. It's just like it's got you, and there's no way out. One person gets so bitter that just mad, mad, mad at God, mad at the ministry, mad at the church, you can't reason with them anymore. They can't think straight. This wave of resentment and rebellion and bitterness just seethes through their minds and hearts. They're completely unreasonable. Please, brethren, don't let that happen to you. Don't let that happen to anybody. Satan can get you and keep you through that as much as anything else, a root of bitterness. You can make a mistake and drink too much and repent. You could make a mistake and do other things. I don't want to describe any sin is bad, but repent and come back. But a root of bitterness will just be there and grab the innermost part of your being and mind and heart and soul. And it's awfully hard to get out of that. Don't ever let yourself get into that. A root of bitterness. So that's a battle. And be sure it does not get you. So let's go ahead now. The fourth uh, key to overcoming Satan I'd like to give you is this. Strive for humility. 
And that, brethren, is such an important characteristic all the way through the Bible. Uh, God indicates that a lack of humility is one of the ways that Satan could get at you the most easily. James chapter 4, verse 6, God says, give, uh, God, he gives more grace. Therefore, God says, God resists the proud. James 4, 6. God hates pride. You think I'm so great and look how good I am and I'm successful and I've got this or got that and you're proud of yourself. God resists that attitude, a kind of cocky and self-will. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. He will give his grace and mercy if we come like little children. And you know all the examples where Jesus said we've got to come into the kingdom of God as a little child. God, help me, teach me, guide me, clean me up, scrub me out. I'm so weak. I need your help. That's the attitude God wants us to have. There, He says, therefore, submit to God, verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. With that attitude of humility, resist the devil. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn instead of being filled with vanity. I've got, I'm smarter than these and I'm self-willed and I'm going to do what I want to do. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. This is the attitude of humility and the opposite attitude of self-will and vanity and self-seeking, that is the attitude Satan could get at so easily and turn you aside to do your own thing, to go your own way. So I hope we can really understand that. And now I want to turn then at this point, uh, brethren, to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter uh, 5, yes, if you would. And uh, let's go there at this point. First Peter chapter 5. And notice, I'm not going to read it all, but beginning in verse uh, 5, he said, Likewise, you people, you younger people, talking to non- younger people in this physically younger and perhaps younger in the church, the truth, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And we should try to do that, to be submissive to one another, learn from one another, grow from one another, and not think we all know everything. But basically submit yourself to your elders. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. And as I've said so many times, that's hard to do. Be clothed with humility. It doesn't mean you've got to walk around looking at the ground all day. I'm humble, 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 or wear a black suit all the time, or a black robe like some Catholic priest to live in a cave. That doesn't prove. Some of those men had terrible vanity when we read about some of what they did. But be clothed with genuine humility to know that you're weak, you make mistakes, you need God's help, and really understand that, and submit to God, fear God. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's an attitude that God sees as like the devil. If someone says, I know everything, and I'm pretty successful, and I'm going to do my own thing. God hates that, because he knows that's going to keep you from fully submitting to him. Over and over, you'll find that, as we did earlier, back in James. 
God resists those who have that vanity. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You want to be exalted? We all want to be exalted. We want to be in God's kingdom. We'd like to have power and glory and success. And we're going to have it in spades when God's kingdom comes. And one of our leading evangelists said years ago, he says, Rod, he says, whatever job we have in this life is nothing compared to what we'll have in God's kingdom. When you think about the power that we're going to have, we don't need to worry about it. This was back in worldwide and people were being put down and put up and we all had to understand that. And here I, it helped me to hear that from him. I respected him. He fell away later, but he had a good deal of wisdom, human wisdom, and been successful in business himself. And I came to realize that, well, I was, you know, director of the ministry for a while, so what? And I used to be proud to be student body president. Then I looked at a, at a picture of the various student body presidents, and I began to note and went through them. I've gone through them with some of our older ministers, and I should not do that now. But uh, you know, start listing the ones by name. And I know them, all the early ones, about the first 10 or 12. Most of them fell away. I thought, boy, if you're a student body president, then you're pretty important. Pretty important student body president of a little tiny, tiny college that nobody heard of, basically. You're not very important. I'm president of the living church of God. Like my uncle used to say, root to toot to toot. We're from, we're the girls from the Institute. I guess he had this old saying, okay, president of what? Most of the world never heard of the living church of God. Should I get all vain about that? No, I might die tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I'm 81 years old. I better not be vain about anything. We're a tiny, tiny little church. Some of you, I know some, one reason I met my wife is because of uh, vanity and this part of others and not her. But I uh, see my time here, but better not tell too many stories. <laughs> but I had to go up to Bakersfield back at that time from headquarters because the deacons were having a feud up there. I think I've told you about that. There were five deacons and three had already fallen away and one was about to fall away. And the one other deacon was causing the trouble. He got in with the ministry and was beginning to exalt himself and push others around. And the others got all upset because they didn't have the same jobs they had. And I remember getting up and telling them about this thing of being important and something big. I said, look, the great big semis are rumbling up and down uh, the, the freeway right over here. All these thousands of cars roaring up and down Highway 5 and up and down the freeways around here in Bakersfield. They don't even know that our little tiny church, 130 we had there, even exists. Who cares who's the head deacon? Who cares if the deacon does a little bit more of this or that, you know? It's not a big deal. Most of the world never heard of my church, let alone worry about what's the deacon. If you do your part, God will take care of you. So they got all bent out of shape because of a little deacon feud. But it worked for good. God causes all things to work for good. So since I was there in Bakersfield anyway to straighten out the deacon's feud, why right after my first sermon going up there, a, a gorgeous young woman came up. And she said, Dr. Meredith, I love you. That was such a wonderful sermon and helped me. And all I could remember was the first five words. <laughs> and I said, who is that? And I said, Cheryl Hensley. And I said, oh, is she married? Well, her husband died a few months ago. Oh, 
I didn't want to say good, but I thought I'm, 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 I'm a, a widower and she's a widow, so that makes it okay. Anyway, I, you know the rest of the story, as we say. But anyway, it worked for good because I, I found various reasons to get back up there and solve the deacon's problem. <laughs> and it solved my problem also at the same time. Anyway, so all things work together for good. But... Those deacons, four of them eventually left, and the one guy stayed, and he got to be the head deacon, but later he got all bent out of shape because he was had filled with vanity, and then he got himself kicked out by another minister or dropped out or something later on. So I understand he's not in the church either. Vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. So don't let those things take you out of the church in any way. Anyway, he tells us here, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God does care for us, but he wants us to be humble. He wants us to be forgiving. He wants us to be childlike. He wants us to come into his kingdom as little children who are willing to learn, willing to forget and love each other. The next day, little boys fight over the marbles. The next day, go they ride out in the same neighborhood and play marbles again with the same boys. You know, the little children don't use to carry grudges, but adults start carrying grudges. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. A powerful real lion in the forest who shakes the branches almost when he roars, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. It's a battle, brethren. Fight him. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Believe in God and know he'll take care of it, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us into, as it should be, his eternal glory, He's not called us just to see it, but to be into it, to have that glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered a while. You say, well, I'm not going to put up with any suffering. Too bad for you. You won't be there. I've had to put up with a lot of suffering. You're all going to have to put up with some misunderstandings, some hurts, some sufferings, or you won't be there. After you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we have to have that attitude in every way. Now, brethren, the fifth key, key number five, is to know that Christ will help you if you do your part. He will help you. He will deliver you in the end if you do your part. And you've got to have faith in Christ and God that that will happen and put your faith in God that that absolutely will happen. Notice back in Romans uh, chapter 8 now, if you would, turn back to Romans 8. It says here in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. We don't want to die and have eternal death and cease to exist and all our hopes and dreams are gone. You will die. But if through the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body and you overcome Satan and this world, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. 
The New International Version and others have it sonship. It is equally well translated that way it means to make a son when we understand the real meaning of the word in context. To make a son by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. You think you've been hurt, you've got hurt feelings, you've been mistreated, or you've been misunderstood, or you haven't been made the next deacon, or your husband didn't get to be the next elder and you thought he ought to be, or whatever it is. Don't get bent out of shape about little tiny things in a little tiny church. Think of the whole world. Think of the whole universe that God is preparing you to help rule later on if you learn to walk with God and get along in the church, respect the offices that God has set, and fear God and serve Him. These trials are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. He said in verse 28, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the very image of His Son. We're to be fully like Christ in every way, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He called, whom He called, these He justified, In his purpose, he did it in advance, and whom he justified them, he glorified in his plan. That is the outcome if we hang in there. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So that's the key, brethren. If God is for us, who can be against us? The devil can't overcome us. The world can't overcome us. The coming beast power is going to come roaring around and persecuting people, torturing people, every other kind of thing. It doesn't make any difference if God is for us. He would not not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things, the whole universe? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also is risen, who is even at the right hand of God. Christ is at God's right hand. He's working with us. He's guiding us. He's fashioning and molding us individually, trying to teach us lessons, who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, as it is written, for your sake were killed all day long. Many of God's people had to be martyred back during the uh, age there, uh, the second age of the church. And that, you know, really is is uh, sad to think about it. I've always been glad that we didn't have to go in at that particular time. We didn't have to go through that church age. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through God who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. They're going to invent some new mind control thing and try to get you with it. They're going to put you in a space capsule and say, ah, we'll get rid of you. We'll send you in outer space and God will never get you. Oh, really? How? What is outer space? Now, you've heard me explain, but here is the world and here is outer space. 
And here's God, you know, it's not outer space to God. I don't care where they send you or what they do. If you're God's child, he will take care of you. If you learn to fear God, resist the devil with all your being, and want to be in God's kingdom so bad you can taste it, you will not let any of these things turn you aside, including the devil himself. So neither things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So you want to have faith that God is there, that he will take care of you, that he will even the score in the end. And if someone has mistreated you, they will have to repent. When I see some of the men in tomorrow's world that may have mistreated me in the past, am I going to say, oh, good, good, finally God got them or something? No, they'll be glorified spirit beings. I will look at them and I'll realize that George or Joe or John or whatever the name is, they went through trials and tests of all kinds. I'll know that. Or they will not be there. They will not be there. God has worked with them. And they've had to get down on their knees with tears in their eyes. And beg God to clean them up and scrub them out and forgive them and have mercy and work with them. Or they will not be there. So God will work with you. And God will work with me in all those ways. Or we will not be there. So please use these five points to overcome Satan the devil. So that you do not get it turned aside by anything even Satan the devil, and could be living forever in the kingdom of God.